0: I'm Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Dr. Stephen Nemish is an analytic philosopher and theologian who uses a phenomenological approach to reading scripture and constructing theology. In this interview, I ask him about his unique approach to evaluating doctrine, especially the Trinity, from a phenomenological perspective. We also discuss Restorationism as a common ground and delve into church history extensively. In the end, Nemish argues for freedom rather than dogma when evaluating various doctrines related to the Trinity. Here now is episode 477 Questioning the Trinity with Stephen Nemish. <laughs> Dr. Stephen Nemesh, welcome to Restitudio. Thanks for taking some time to talk with me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So you have recently res- gotten your PhD in theology from Fuller Theological Seminary, and there you studied phenomenology and systematic theology and their intersection. People know, I think, generally what systematic theology is, uh, sort of like an organized way of talking about your beliefs, your doctrines, and practices. But I think phenomenology is a little less known. Of course, my audience is uh, very interested in theology. We do a lot of theology around here at Restitutio, but uh, phenomenology has not come up yet. So uh, could you give us just a brief little definition, a working definition for people to think with so we can just understand better where you're coming from?
1: Sure. I can quote from Robert Sokolowski's book, Introduction to Phenomenology. He says that phenomenology is the study of human experience and of how things present themselves to us in and through such experience. So if I were to give it in a sentence, I would say that phenomenology is a method for doing philosophy that proceeds by the close analysis of experience. Okay.
0: And can one do theology from a phenomenological perspective
1: well, this is perhaps the most controversial question in uh, phenomenology, because after so the the founder we can say the founders the, the big founders of phenomenology in the twentieth century were Edmund Husserl and Martin Heidegger and other philosophers in their circles in the early uh, in the early nineteen uh, hundreds in Germany, and then phenomenology spread to other parts of Europe, and almost from the beginning. Phenomenologists showed an interest in the investigation of religious subject matters uh, because they saw phenomenology, at least at the beginning, uh, they saw that phenomenology was a sort of a, a new philosophical possibility to the more tired sort of Kantianism that had kind of put all religious discourse beyond the pale. Uh, So they saw that phenomenology was a new way of doing philosophy, and it suddenly made it possible to talk about religious subject matters in a way that the older uh, Kantian philosophy did not. Now, things didn't stay that way for very long. With Heidegger, for example, who was a student of Husserl, phenomenology and and religion sort of take separate paths. They go in different ways. But then Husserl's philosophy was transplanted into France, and then you had a generation of French phenomenologists who began talking once more about religious subject matters by a phenomenological method. And then some more conservative phenomenological types came in and said, no, this is not good. You guys are ruining phenomenology by talking about religion. These are two different things. You know, you're you're sort of compromising the integrity of both fields by blending them because they really talk about different things. And then there are counter responses to that. So your question is highly controversial. Can we do <laughs> phenomenology and talk about religious stuff? Well. That depends whether you think religion principally has to do with things that are beyond experience or whether it has to do with this sphere of experience that we have here. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a book about this. It's my book, Theology of the Manifest, uh, Christianity Without Metaphysics. This is coming out this year sometime. Right now the book is in production. And what I argue for in that book is that Christian theology should be phenomenological and it should not think of itself as talking about things beyond the sphere of experience because if you do that then you run into all kinds of logical problems and this requires reinterpreting various elements of the christian faith away from the way that they were understood in sort of the catholic mainstream so i'm thinking specifically about issues like the eucharist um, the relationship between tradition and theology um, even issues like trinity and incarnation all these things have to be rethought In a different lens. So you didn't think this was going to be such a a long answer, maybe when you're asking the question, but in brief, the answer to your question is can you know you do phenomenology and talk about religious studies, it's controversial, but if you do take that route, then I think personally that a lot of things in the Catholic tradition of theology have to be re thought and, and revised if you do take that route. Because I think traditional Catholic theology is not phenomenological. It does not try to talk about experience. It talks about things that are behind experience, so to speak, or beyond it. If you try to blend that with phenomenology, something has to give eventually.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like you your way of getting around the subject a little bit is to focus on the experience of reading scripture, and that that's kind of a way in to have uh, thoughts and discussions about theology from a from a phenomenological perspective is, it, is that how you do it or tell us a little bit more about how you get away with this without sure. without invoking metaphysics?
1: Sure. So I so my dissertation was about on the phenomenology of scripture and what I was asking it, I was asking the question what does it mean to read the Bible as scripture? How does scripture relate to tradition of the Church as an authority for theology? And is there an experience where God is speaking to us through scripture? And if so, what is that experience like? So these are sort of the three guiding questions of my dissertation. In the first place, uh, what does it mean to read the Bible as scripture? Well, it means reading the Bible on the assumption that God is going to say something to me through it, right? right? So it's seeing the Bible as a medium of divine communication. Now, does what God says have to agree with what the human author says? uh does god necessarily endorse everything that the human author author says these are other questions right so these are things that people can disagree about but the basic idea is that when i read the bible i am reading on the assumption that god is going to say something to me through this text whether that is through the literal sense of the text by the human author or apart from it or whatever how do scripture and tradition relate as authorities for theology well they relate in a way of a reciprocal or mutual priority so i think scripture is prior in one sense and and tradition is prior in another sense tradition i say is prior in a sort of formal and phenomenological sense because the new testament and the old testament themselves were products of a tradition right so there were already people in the world who already believed certain things and thought in a certain way and they expressed their thoughts in these texts right so to some extent the tradition comes first right the tradition produces these texts Furthermore, tradition is prior to scripture in a phenomenological sense in the w- in the sense that I cannot even read scripture at all unless I am educated. I'm initiated into a tradition and I'm told what certain words mean so that when I find those words on the text, I can ascribe a meaning to them. Right. So if I have no idea what Israel, God, Jesus, righteousness, sin, etc., if I don't know what any of those words are, if I come from a, a place where we don't even talk in those terms at all then i can't read the bible it won't make any sense to me right Mm -hmm. because these concepts are essential for what the bible is talking about and unless i'm initiated into a certain tradition where these concepts are at play and where people care about these things and talk about them i won't be able to make sense of scripture so on the one hand the scripture is the product of a tradition on the other hand without being educated into a certain tradition without being told by people what these words mean and how to understand their relation to each other i can't read scripture at all it's like reading in a different language so there's a sense in which tradition is prior to scripture. But on the other hand, there's a sense in which scripture is prior to tradition in the sense that it's an authority, right? So it's true that without a tradition of some kind, I cannot read the scripture, but it doesn't follow, therefore, that any tradition goes, right? Mm-hmm. Because what I'm trying to do when I read scripture is not just to take my prior ideas and to apply them to the text and to conform the text to my prior ideas. What I really am trying to do is to understand what the text is saying. And so that means that I may have to make adjustments to my prior concepts in order to make better sense of the way the scripture talks. And anybody, for example, who went from being a Trinitarian to a Unitarian understands this, right? So as a Trinitarian, you are taught to talk about God in a certain way. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal as God. Any divisions, any hint of subordination, for example, is purely economic. Um, It has to do with God's activity in history. It doesn't have to do with God and himself anything ascribed to Christ that implies limitation or or change or mutability, et cetera. These things are to be understood with respect to his human nature, not with respect to his divine nature. So there's this whole tradition, this whole way of talking and reading the text that you are taught as a Trinitarian. Now, if you read the New Testament and you found that this way of thinking about things does not help you to read the text, but actually makes it more difficult. Uh, if it seems to you that the text doesn't talk like you were expecting it to, if it seems that the, the text talks in a different way that doesn't make a lot of sense, given what you think, Then you may have to make adjustments to your tradition and you may have to say, you know what, maybe it isn't the case that Father, Son, and, you know, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Maybe God is just the Father. Maybe Christ isn't divine and human. Maybe he's just human. And if he's divine in any sense, it's because of God acting on him and not because he has a divine nature, right? So you can make all these adjustments to your prior tradition, so to speak, in order to work with the text and to be able to understand better what the text is saying. So it's true that you start with a tradition in order to be able to read but you don't have to end there you can make adjustments to your tradition and the text itself may at times demand that you make these adjustments because the text is operating on a different wavelength it's like when you turn the knob on the radio and you're trying to pick up a signal you can be at a certain frequency and you kind of hear it but you don't hear it very well and then you turn it just a little bit more and now you're on the same wavelength and you hear the the radio station a lot better than earlier right so the same thing with us we're trying to pick up something from this text. And our traditions that we have in our minds are kind of like the frequency that we're operating on, and we may have to make adjustments in order to hear the message a lot more clearly.
0: Let me pause you on that. That last part you were talking about, how Scripture should be allowed to criticize tradition, I think that's what has enabled you to make so many adjustments in your recent thought on the subject of the Trinity and the hypostatic union. It might be getting you into some trouble here because <laughs> like everything you say sounds like you know from a phenomenological point of view sounds very reasonable you're being constructive uh, you're not just deconstructing which we see that all the time in our culture today everyone wants to tear down but you're also building something up which is great your typical Catholic slash mainstream protestants would, would be happy to hear you say well sp- especially catholics the the part about tradition prior to scripture because they say. Well, who do you think gave you the scriptures? Who, who do you think decided what would be scripture and what wouldn't be scripture? That's us. You know, we're the church. Protestants are maybe a little less comfortable with that. But then this last move you make to say that, well, scripture can critique tradition and this sort of like dogged honesty that you have. I don't think the Roman Catholic mindset is so concerned with that because they don't have to believe it. If it's in the Bible, they believe it because of tradition, creed, and councils, and encyclicals, and and so on. Whereas the Protestant has all this pressure to find their doctrines in Scripture. Uh, So Mm -hmm. maybe a Catholic is not so bothered by this approach. But I think from Protestants, you're going to, I don't know, have you faced a lot of criticism?
1: Well, do I face criticism with respect to? Allowing Scripture
0: to critique tradition.
1: Well, I think every Protestant agrees with that in principle. Um, Although some more traditional sort of pro-Catholic type Protestants will say, we cannot just let scripture by itself, we have to have scripture plus this sort of primordial Catholic tradition, you know, that can be summarized, let's say, in the Nicene Creed or the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed or whatever. Some Protestants are a little squishy about this. Some of them will say, yes, scripture can always critique every tradition in principle. Others will say scripture is the ultimate source of theology and of theological knowledge, but we have to approach scripture through the lens of the basic great tradition, so to speak, of the Catholic Church. This is all confused. I My whole way of talking about these things is, again, informed by phenomenological philosophy, because Edmund Husserl, in his early works, emphasized that the only principle of inquiry is to talk about a thing as that thing demands right that's the one method for all scientific inquiry whatsoever if i'm going to do biology and i want to talk about living things then i have to confront living things in experience and i have to talk about them in a way that those things themselves demand right i can't come with my prior conceptions and try to impose a template onto my experience and to just conform everything to my theories i have to allow my theories to be guided by the way things are themselves and the way they show themselves to me in experience we can say that the only canon, the only standard in biology is living things themselves. That's the standard for our inquiries. The only standard in astronomy are the stars themselves. We have to talk about the stars the way they are and not as the way we think they should be. And so also, if we're if we're talking about the interpretation of the New Testament, the New Testament itself is the standard for what we say about it, right? So we have to talk about the New Testament the way that the New Testament demands that we talk about it rather than the way that a certain tradition suggests we should talk about it and so on, because the new testament is what it is and when i talk about it i want to be truthful and that means talking about it as it is not talking about it as other people say that i should talk about it or whatever you know you mentioned earlier this this catholic argument that you get sometimes well you know who do you think chose the canon of scripture who do you think established these things it was us a lot of times i think in discussions with roman catholics you give an argument hey look it looks like scripture doesn't teach what you guys say and then they'll give this counter argument well where do you think you got scripture from it was from us strictly speaking that's a red herring it doesn't matter all right so you can have determined the canon of scripture i can even say yes you guys correctly selected the inspired books out of all the books that were available at this time you guys were right these are the inspired ones okay that's great it's a separate question whether those books say what you say they do right because that's what we're talking about not whether the books are inspired not whether they're authoritative but what do they say all right those other questions are irrelevant i can deny that the scriptures have any authority whatsoever and i can still be right about what they mean Right, so the question about the authority of scriptures and the meaning of the scripture, there's two different things. Even if the authority of the scriptures demands, for example, a certain magisterial institution or whatever, even if it, all that is necessary, the meaning of the scriptures is something else. The texts mean what they mean independently of what we say about them. And our goal as researchers, as inquirers, should be to speak about the text as the texts themselves demand. Okay, so this question about authority is irrelevant. What does the New Testament say? How does the New Testament demand that we interpret it? That's really the question at hand. And all these other questions about authority and tradition are irrelevant. And so another point that I make uh, in my dissertation is that it's true that we have to have some tradition or other in order to read scripture, but our goal is to have that tradition, which makes it possible for us to understand what scripture is saying. And the only way to do that is to have all these traditions that exist out there in the world right now that are claiming continuity with scripture to prove themselves. Okay, you say you have the scriptural teaching. Okay, provide an interpretation of the New Testament, which seems so natural that it could have come from Paul or Peter or John themselves, right? Try to come up with a way of interpreting the scripture that seems so natural that it would come from the author himself. This is how you prove yourself. From the mere fact that you need a tradition to read scripture, it doesn't follow that I need your tradition. I want what the scripture is actually saying, and your tradition has to prove itself in comparison with others by providing an interpretation of scripture that seems natural. And if you can't do that, then everything else that you can say in your favor is irrelevant, right? Because what we're talking about here and doing theology is interpreting scripture. Yeah,
0: it really sounds like restorationism which is kind of the idea of my uh, podcast here and the approach that many of us have radical Reformation Protestants in the 21st century, if I could put it that way, who are just like not convinced that the creeds should be regarded as infallible or that traditional so-called traditional doctrines. It depends on what century you're looking at, whether or not they're traditional, whether or not these doctrines should hinder or limit our exploration of Scripture. The Restorationist says, "Well, let's let's see if we can't get back to the first-century understanding of the New Testament. Roughly speaking, you know, it's not an exact date, but let, let's try to understand it in its own." thought world to whatever degree we can. Not that we don't try to live it out today in the real world as well. You know That's obviously important. And we do have to ask, answer questions about smartphone usage and other technology issues that come up. But uh, I recognize your approach is from a completely different perspective, angle from phenomenology. But it just reminds me a lot of what it is a lot of us are trying to do, uh, to peel back these layers and get back to the,
1: the original. What is common here is this recognition that people who talk about something are accountable to that thing all right so if we for example talk about scripture we're accountable to scripture for the way that we talk about it and our talk our speech about scripture the interpretations that we give to it are answerable to scripture and they have to be judged according to the thing that we're talking about in a restorationist mode you might say that in principle it cannot be that creeds and traditions are just as authoritative as scripture because what we're doing is we're trying to interpret scripture, all right? And a creed is a sort of a, a crystallization of an interpretation of scripture at a certain moment in time, but it doesn't follow that it's final, right? Because it's talking about something else. Its authority is conditional just by nature, it's derivative. And if you judge that this creed is not true to scripture, then you can give it up because what we're all trying to talk about is scripture. Well, the same thing is true in phenomenology. One of the principles of phenomenology is that inquiry is accountable to objects. So if I'm investigating something, Then I'm accountable to that thing for the way that I talk about it and think about it for the method that I choose and so on. If I want to write a book about biology, but I never actually do any like field research about animals, that's a poor book because I don't have the appropriate method, right? I'm accountable, you know, in a sense, accountable to the thing that I'm talking about and I need to have an appropriate method for that thing. And in theology, what we're doing is talking about what scripture means. So I cannot, in principle, demand that something that came 300 or 400 or 500 years later be the lens through which I read scripture, because they're just two different things. And I can't assume ahead of time that they agree. I have to show that they agree. And it may be that in in showing that they agree, I come to find that they don't actually. Maybe, you know, the Council of Chalcedon talks about Christ or implies talking about Christ in a way that the New Testament authors themselves do not. And so in that case, I kind of have to make a choice. Am I going to say that, you know, the fathers of Chalcedon had a better understanding of Christ than Peter and James and Paul did? Or am I going to say that they've misunderstood what Peter and James and Paul were trying to say about Christ? That's, you know, that's just the situation that I'm in.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk about the Trinity. When I listened to your interview with Dale Tuggy in September, uh, last September, you listed off a whole series of problems with the Trinity. It was really quite exhilarating listening, uh, philosophical uh, problems. Uh, that you mentioned there. Then he asked you, well, why do you still believe in it? And you replied something like, well, it's hard to disprove one usia and three subsistences. In more recent times, I've noticed that you are uh, no longer identifying as a Trinitarian in some of your blogs. Could you tell us like what happened?
1: Yeah, so I, I should express my position as follows. In principle, I am agnostic about the imminent Trinity. Okay, so I think God in himself, apart from all relation to history and so on, is God in himself Trinitarian, or as Trinitarians describe, I'm agnostic in principle about that because I don't think it's knowable. All right, So I won't say that he isn't, but I won't say that he is. I think it's just something that is beyond our ability to know. Well, that's
0: a feature of your phenomenological approach. You could never get at that because it's not revealed, right?
1: Correct, correct, okay. yeah. With respect to the New Testament's teaching, I do not think that the New Testament teaches a doctrine of the Trinity. I think, to the contrary, it teaches something else. I don't think that it teaches for example that christ is a single person in two natures it seems to me that christ is presented in the new testament is a human being who is especially used by god and empowered by god and authorized by god through the holy spirit to do various things but he is not one person in two natures he's a one person with one nature who is being granted you know by god's grace abilities to do things beyond what would be possible for him in virtue of his nature I agree with the notion that there is a kind of an economic triad, if we can call it that. I think that it's appropriate to summarize, you know, the biblical narration by saying that uh, God sends his son in the Holy Spirit or something like that, right? You sort of this Fred Sanders style um, summary of the Trinity. I agree with that as a purely economic triad, right? I agree that the basic testimony of the New Testament is that God sends his son in the Spirit. Uh, but if you try to wed to that verbal formula, a very particular metaphysical story about what that means, then I will disagree. So for example, if you think that there is an imminent trinity and an economic trinity and the economic trinity is sort of the mirror image or the reflection, the outworking of this imminent trinity, I don't agree with any of that because I don't think there's any evidence for it. But if you just mean to say that God the Father sends his son to do something through the power of the Holy Spirit, then I agree with that. I can agree with that. I can accept that formula in my own system. Yeah. So why, why do I not call myself a Trinitarian? Why why was I a, a bit reticent to give up the label back then? Well, I, I should admit, I have for some time thought that the doctrine of the Trinity is not a dogma, but a theologumenon. I have a book that's coming out this year called Theological Authority in the Church. And one of the arguments that I make in that book is that the doctrine of the Trinity should be considered something that Christians can disagree about. It should not be a dogma. It does not have the kind of scriptural attestation to make it a dogma. It is... Not clear, even whether there's a single interpretation, right? So there's certainly a certain verbal formula. You can talk about one God and three persons or whatever. But the Trinitarian theologians themselves do not agree about how to interpret that statement, what it amounts to. There is no consensus about the meaning of the doctrine, so to speak, beyond the mere words that are used. So given these facts, given that people don't agree about how to interpret the formula, and given the fact that it does not have, even by Trinitarians own admission, very strong attestation in the New Testament itself, I don't think it's a dogma. I think it's something you can believe. It's a theologumenon. It's a disputable opinion. It's something that you can believe if you think there's evidence for it. You can disbelieve it if you think there's evidence against it. Christians can disagree about these things, but I don't believe that it's a dogma. I don't recall exactly what I said in my interview with Dale. Well, I remember he he asked you, he kind of put you on the spot,
0: and you said, I don't see a way to disprove it, so I'm going to continue identifying with it. I don't, I don't know if that's exactly what you said, but it, it kind of gave me the impression that you were still comfortable with the label, even though you couldn't give an account, any kind of an account, on how to make sense of the idea.
1: So I think what I meant to say was that the notion of an imminent Trinity itself cannot be disproven, just because, you know, just in principle, it's it's inaccessible to us. And so for that reason, I don't say that the doctrine of the Trinity is false, but I do say that it's a disputable opinion. It's a theologumenon. So I think that's what I meant to say. I think that's what I said in Dale's interview. I I don't say that the doctrine of the Trinity, specifically the imminent Trinity, is false. I say that it's unknowable. And as for the doctrine of the Trinity, just in general, considered on its own, it's a theologumenon. It's something people can disagree about. Now, why didn't I call myself a non-Trinitarian then? Well, I would have probably said that the Trinity doctrine has any number of philosophical problems with it. The New Testament doesn't have to be read that way. You can get along just fine without the doctrine i suppose i just didn't come out that at that time in this way but further reflection on these issues and further consideration of the problem uh, led me to the conviction that no i should say publicly what i think and i should i should you know make a public case for the alternative point of view Uh, one thing that i find very disappointing about these conversations that i've had online is that there are people who are extremely confident in the doctrine of the trinity and who think that you've you know sort of fallen off the wagon if you don't believe it But they don't read anything by non-Trinitarians. They don't have any idea how a non-Trinitarian would respond to their arguments. They don't have any notion whatsoever of the critiques that non-Trinitarians bring to Trinitarian exegesis of the New Testament, for example. I thought that this was, you know, sort of annoying. It was kind of bothersome to me. My background is in philosophy, as you know, and uh, in theology. And I've always been a person who thought that if you're going to, you know, have an informed opinion about something, you have to hear all the sides, you have to hear all the arguments and that's not going on for a lot of people as regards these issues. They hear the trinitarian arguments, they don't hear the non-trinitarian arguments. So I said, okay, I have a little bit of a platform, some people know who I am. I think I can start, you know, making some public arguments and and showing people that there's more to these things than maybe they originally thought.
0: Yeah. Well, you definitely have gotten some attention. It takes courage to to do what you're doing. Because uh, this is a sacred cow. Just call it what it is. You're not. You're not allowed to talk about it. You could talk. You could talk about what it is, and how to th- how to think through what a person is, or how the two natures work together in the hypostatic union. But you're not allowed to say, well, maybe they just got it wrong. Like that's just mm-hmm. those. That's just a yeah. thought that's forbidden in uh, a lot of Christianity today. Both on conservative and liberal sides and you know certainly among the more liturgical high church uh, traditions as well so i I, i'm very impressed that you're you know you're being consistent with yourself you know you're you're saying well this is my approach and i'm going to apply it whatever the results are they are i'm not going to back down and pretend like i didn't just like discover some big thing was problematic yeah Uh, so I, i really appreciate that
1: I, w- I wouldn't say that I'm courageous. I don't think, for example, that my wife would describe me as courageous. I think my <laughs> wife would describe me as just indifferent. I don't care. <laughs> you know, I and I think that that is closer to how I actually feel about these things. I don't think that I'm fighting some sort of heroic battle. I don't consider myself a courageous person. I consider myself an academic theologian, and I don't care what you say about me because I'm thinking about these things really hard, and I'm trying to come up with the right answer, and it's indifferent to me whether you agree or you disagree, whether you think nice things or bad things about me. That's the true answer. For me, theology is, strictly speaking, an academic enterprise. And this is this is one place where I think I will disagree with even some Unitarians and certainly with a lot of Trinitarians. I talk about this a little bit in my book, like I said, uh, Theological Authority in the Church. For me, these matters of Trinity and Incarnation and so on, these are very highfalutin, speculative, metaphysical matters. They have nothing to do whatsoever with the essence of Christian faith. And so for me, it is a matter of indifference. What conclusion I come to about them? And I don't care what people say about me for for disagreeing with them, because I think it has literally nothing to do with what it is to be a Christian. This is my approach to a lot of issues in theology, most generally. I think they're strictly academic enterprises. I consider myself an academic investigator and and an academic theologian, and it is indifferent to me how people think about me. I'm interested in a purely rational and scientific, at least as far as possible, investigation into these matters. And so if, if some people are made unhappy by what I say or by what I think or the conclusion that I come to, it's really a matter of indifference to me in particular. Yeah, that, given that's how I feel about things, I don't call it courage or whatever. I It's it's indifferent. I,
0: yeah, you're just pursuing
1: the truth wherever it leads. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to do something else altogether from what a lot of people are doing.
0: It's a great approach. You said something in, a, in, in the interview with uh, Dr. Tuggy about uh, Mark Edwards' book, Catholicity and Heresy. You talked about how the Gnostics tended to hypostasize, if that's even a word, uh, make into a person attributes or characteristics. So like wisdom becomes an entity, an aeon or whatever. And, uh, you know, you've got a noose and uh, what else? Spirit. And, you know, you have all these multiplication of these abstract qualities made into agents of some sort. And uh, you, you said Mark Edwards made the point that the Nicene reasoning actually drew upon this Gnostic move of making a person out of a, out of a quality. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that, because uh, that's really a fascinating idea. D- did, did he provide any evidence, or like, how, how, can you, how could you even establish that?
1: So I should be clear. I don't think that the Nicenes were drawing on Gnostic works. It's just that the same impulse was involved finding a reference to a quality and then hypostatizing it you know turning it into a person that i think is an impulse that was in, at play in the gnostics and it's also at play in the nicene theologians who make god's word and god's spirit into something now they're selective here because there are a lot more qualities than word and spirit that are mentioned in the bible there's wisdom there's righteousness there's this you know there's a right arm and so on right truth So the Gnostics maybe are more consistent in saying, well, look, we have a a hundred aeons or a hundred archons or whatever they're called. But it's not that the the Nicenes are drawing from the Gnostics. It's that the same impulse is at play in both of those uh, schools. Now, I, I have a speculation. This is purely a speculation on my part. I cannot substantiate this opinion now, but it's an idea that I have in my mind. It seems to me that there was in Alexandria a certain tendency in Christianity to think of Christ as this pre-existent divine being. Walter Bauer for example in his book uh, Orthodoxy and heresy in early Christian history or something along those lines in early Christianity he argues that Orthodox Christianity did not even exist in Alexandria Egypt until you know well into the hundreds and you know, 150s or so and the forms of Christianity that existed in Alexandria prior to then would have been called heretical by later generations. And one thing that is especially common in Alexandria is this idea of Christ as this descended divine being who, you know, sort of only appears to be a human, is not actually a human, and so on. My suspicion, my speculation is that, and of course, in Alexandria, some years later, we have Athanasius and Alexander, the bishop, who insisted that Christ was consubstantial with the Father. My inclination is to say that Nicene theology has. historic connection to various forms of Gnostic Christology through Alexandria. For whatever reason, I just think it was more common in Alexandria than in other places to think of God Christ as a divine being who became human or looked like a human. Now, I will also say this, um, sometimes I wonder, I wonder if the Gnostics can't be read differently so that it's not that they have like a hundred different hypotheses or whatever, but rather that they're just talking about stages in sort of you know God's consciousness or his development or something like you know the difference between the the one and uh, intellect and world soul and so on in Plotinus. These are not so much separate things as they are simply stages or elements or levels of consciousness and you can sort of you know go work backwards so sometimes i wonder whether or not something like that is at play in the gnostics too that they didn't actually have this ridiculous panoply of a hundred thousand archons or whatever that the, you know but rather they're just talking about dimensions of consciousness and certain levels of consciousness and there's a more fundamental and a more basic one i wonder about that myself sometimes i don't know i i don't i haven't read enough on the gnostics to know if other people are proposing something like this i wonder that because to some extent i think to myself where do these speculations come from? Why do they think these things at all, right? Why come up with this story of 100,000 archons? Where does this come from? Well, you might think that people who are just particularly aware of the movings of consciousness might sense certain patterns and forms of thinking and so on. And so they sort of re- recognize these things in themselves. And then they tell this mythological story about archons and aeons and so on as a way of expressing the point. But again, this is just another speculation of mine. I don't know whether it's whether it, it you know would hold water.
0: Yeah. Well, that is that is the question, is where did this come from? And uh, I would love to learn more about that personally. I will say this, though. There's no question that this particular way of looking at cosmology and cosmogony was incredibly persuasive and attractive to elite Christians and just elite people in the Greco-Roman world, because the Gnostics flourished Then Valentinus gets a hold of it, and he kind of simplifies the system, and then the Valentinians, you know, take off like crazy. And uh, so there's definitely something in that system that just appealed to the to the common sense of the scientific mind or the philosophical mind of the especially second and third centuries. I I don't know where it came from either,
1: (laughs) Uh, but uh, I would be curious to find out. I think that. Because I take this more academic approach to the study of theology, I think that at times opens me up to appreciate things in other systems that other people wouldn't appreciate. You know, there's this volume that came out with Brill, A Companion to Second Century Heretics, or something along oh, those lines. Oh, I love that uh, by, book. That's yeah, a great a book. The uh, Finnish,
0: Finnish scholars. Scho- Yeah, the Finnish scholars. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I was just reading the chapter on, Valentin- on Valentinus, I think, and or was it some other group, and there was talking about a ritual that they have where, as somebody is dying, they teach them these formulas to say, you know, so that they can ascend back up to the to the to the one. And they're, you know, because they're they're anticipating all these things getting in their way, uh, all these sort of like archons or whatever getting in their way and trying to keep them from ascending. Um, and the formula that they say was something along the lines of, you know, I am a child of the, uh, I am a child of the father. You know, my father is older than yours, and blah blah blah, and. You know, on the one hand, you know, ordinary Christians hear this stuff, they think, man, this is crazy. This is just wacko stuff. But I I think it's something beautiful. You know, they were teaching people to think you are God's son. This is the most fundamental thing. Nobody can get in your way when you are God's son and you it is your right to return to him. So even if like the metaphysics is weird and wonky and we would disagree about some of the details, I think I still think there's something fundamentally beautiful that's being suggested, there, which is that you belong to God and nobody can get in your way in returning to God. Nobody has the right to step in front of you getting to God, which I think anybody who has a Christian sensibility and who appreciates what Jesus says, you know, for example, when he says that the father himself loves you uh, or if you who are evil know how to give good things it seems to me like you cannot help but have a certain resonance, right? Even with all the other weird stuff that's associated with it, there is a certain resonance there that that I think is... is Well, you don't get to be a big movement
0: unless you have an idea or a lifestyle or a way of thinking that's attractive to people. And you're right, church historians are terrible. I don't want to name any names, but you know, I've read some books where it's like They just totally blatantly demonize uh, the Ebionites, the Valentinians, you know, Serenthus, poor guy. Like nobody even really knows what he really believed. And just like everybody has heaped every bad thing upon him because he was sort of like the first, you know, the first heretic other than Simon Magus or whatever. But uh, let let me, can you mind if I switch gears a little bit here? Go ahead. I want to ask you about the Recovian Catechism. It seems like you've been reading that or you mentioned it a little bit in recent interview. And uh, so I just want to know, like, what drew you to that work? And what's your, what's your take on the Socinian package, if I could put it that way?
1: My impression is that Socinianism is kind of like, you know, liberal Protestantism before liberal Protestantism. It's a lot of the same ideas, a suspicion about substitutionary atonement, low Christology, An emphasis on ethics and on a transformed life rather than on, you know, this more juridical imputed righteousness sort of ideas that you find in more conservative forms of Protestantism. I'm interested in the Rochovian Catechism specifically from the point of view of its doctrine of Christ's person. So I'm interested in the way that it interprets the New Testament and the arguments that it gives for its understanding of Christ as a human person who is specially used by God rather than as God himself. I think in many ways, I am also a kind of a liberal Protestant, a sort of a neoliberal Protestant. Um, I do not share the same suspicion of substitutionary atonement in any form whatsoever. I can understand the criticisms of particular formulations of like penal substitutionary atonement. My own preferred view, I would say that Christ makes atonement for human sin through his death, but not because God specifically punishes him, but rather because he he performs something that makes up for it. Uh, you know, he, he asks that his death count for people. So he he makes of his death an offering for sin rather than he being punished uh, by God. So I I agree that there's something wrong with the image of God the Father punishing the Son. I think that there's all kinds of problems if you talk that way, but I still think it's appropriate to talk about substitutionary atonement in this sort of non-penal sense where Christ makes an offering of of his death. He shows faithfulness to God even to the point of death, and alongside this faithfulness, he asks that God forgive the sins of the world or however you would want to put it. So I, I disagree with the Rakovian catechism and with Socinianism generally about substitutionary atonement. I think that there is a place for it. I don't think that atonement is strictly speaking just moral influence. I think that there is a sense in which God has a claim to make over us and he forgives us in some sense or other because of Christ.
0: Well it's hard, it's hard to read Isaiah 53 without any kind of substitution at all. I just don't know how you'd exegete it away.
1: Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you. So I I disagree with Socinianism and certain forms of liberal Protestantism on this respect about a substitutionary atonement, but I'm interested in the Rakovian Catechism specifically from the point of view of its Christological exegesis. That's where where my interest really lies, and that's where I think a lot of very good arguments are to be made.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you about your book, Orthodoxy and Heresy, the little one. Mm -hmm. Um, What was your... What was your main idea there? You went through some some Bible and some church history, and you're trying to get rid of anathemas, which I love. Yeah, yeah. Just talk about that a little bit.
1: Well, the, the premise of these Cambridge Elements books is that it's to provide a basic introduction into a certain concept or a certain field. The editor of the series had read my paper, Theology Without Anathemas, which was published a couple of years ago in the Journal of Analytic Theology. And he said, wouldn't you like to write a, a Cambridge element on the topic of orthodoxy and heresy? And I said, okay, sure, I'll do it. So basically what I'm trying to do in this book is to explain the concepts of orthodoxy and heresy, to show how specific ideas about what constitutes orthodoxy and heresy develop over time, and then to provide a critique of the usefulness of these notions for theology. So uh, the final chapter there, Theology Without Anathemas, what I'm trying to argue in that chapter is that these categories of orthodoxy and heresy get in the way of genuine theological inquiry. For me, theology should be aimed at arriving at the truth. If I'm going to talk about something, my goal is to talk about it as that thing demands, right? So my my speech should correspond to the thing. So truth is a relation between speech and reality, right? You know, my ideas and then the things that my ideas refer to, the real things. Whereas orthodoxy and heresy are categories that refer to relations that obtain between ideas. This idea is orthodox compared to this other idea or this idea is heretical because it's excluded by another idea right so orthodoxy and heresy are sort of horizontal relations that obtain between ideas whereas truth is a vertical relation that obtains between an idea and the thing that it refers to and so i say well listen strictly speaking an idea can be true even if it's heretical and it can be false even if it's orthodox and here's another thing there is no such thing as orthodoxy and heresy without a particular community orthodoxy and heresy is always relative to a community so for certain kinds of Jews, to believe that Jesus is the Messiah is heretical, but for us it's orthodox. To believe that the substances of the bread and the wine remain during the Lord's Supper rather than being transformed into the body and blood of Christ is heretical for Roman Catholicism, but it's orthodox for Lutheranism. Right. So judgments of orthodoxy and heresy are always relative to a community. It's always a matter of you know, the ideas that we endorse. Do they allow or do they disallow this idea? But when I'm doing theology, or when anybody does theology, what we want is not to just talk about the relations between ideas. We want to talk about what's true. Is Jesus actually the Messiah? Do the bread and the wine actually remain in the the Lord's Supper? And if you care about what's true, then the considerations of orthodoxy and heresy quickly become irrelevant, because this idea can be excluded by that idea, but it's still true to what it's talking about, right? So even though your ideas exclude my ideas, my ideas can still be true, or yours ideas can still be true, even though my ideas exclude them. So that's what I'm trying to argue in this book. I'm trying to show what are these concepts of orthodoxy and heresy? How do ideas of orthodoxy and heresy develop over time? In the course of that historical narrative, I also say at various times, like, look, this is when a preoccupation with orthodoxy and heresy got in the way of genuine theological inquiry. And I make this point, for example, in, in connection with the iconoclastic controversy in the 8th century. And then I talk about the relationship between scripture and tradition, and then I talk about theology without anathemas. So that's the basic idea of this book. It's a sort of an intro to these topics. Mm
0: -hmm. You know this this term orthodoxy just drives me nuts. I'll be honest. Uh, I I think I'm going to be teaching a church history class starting in a couple weeks. I'm going to try to avoid using it at all, uh, just because the the it's one of these words that already me you already win if you if you get the label, you know, because technically it means. Right opinion, <laughs> and yeah, so like yeah. I, I'm just really hesitant to uh, to assign that to any kind of community or group of Christians, past or present, uh, just because it's it's just such a huge claim. I don't think I can get a, completely away from it because of the whole Eastern Orthodox. You know, th- they're still claiming that name, but I know it's very common to to label the predecessors who in some ways agreed with nicene christianities as proto orthodox but i'm going to i'm going to try to come up with another label i think just to just to not make it you, this is something you see in church history a lot oh they were they were anticipating the trinity or they were trying to express it but they just didn't quite have the words yet and it's like no it's developing man it's 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 an evolutionary process it's it's clear as day that these people are subordinationists and not egalitarians, if I could put it that way.
1: Well, I I agree with you about the the trickiness of using the label orthodox, so in my I mean, I think I'm orthodox. Yeah, naturally, of course. Right,
0: and of course you think you're orthodox, but we might disagree on some things, so it's just a, I don't know.
1: So in my book, I always put the words orthodox and heretical and Catholic in scare quotes because these are words uh, whose connotations um go further than just the meaning of the word on its own right so i I always put the words in in scare quotes um with respect to this issue about you know proto orthodox or whatever I agree with you entirely. I think people like forget like it you know strictly speaking evolution has no direction right there it's not as if the the process of evolution is going somewhere it's just that um what exists now. You can trace a line back to something that existed in the past all right and there were various contextual figures there were various situational factors that influenced things to get here Uh, but that doesn't mean that these things were trying to get here right if if, exactly yeah if the situation had been different it would have gone somewhere else other Mm -hmm. species would have arose right so evolution has no direction and the same thing is true with the evolution of ideas it has no direction there was nothing about tertullian that demanded that nicaea come later there was nothing about Irenaeus that demanded that you know Constantinople came later. There were all these factors at play that led to certain ideas being pushed in this direction rather than that. But if the factors had been different, the the, the development of the ideas could have been different. Uh, just like, for example, if I had grown up uh, in one part of the country rather than another, I might have a different accent or I might have a different career or whatever, right? So you can take right. the same thing, put it in different context, it becomes something different, mm-hmm. right? It, there is no necessary direction here. Um, And certainly, I don't think that the proto-Trinitarian theologians, as they're called, had any notion whatsoever of the incompleteness of their theology. Right, right, yeah. They thought themselves to have a complete theology. They thought they
0: had the truth about the subject. They weren't like, oh, I really wish I could say this better.
1: Nobody says that.
0: They're just like, here's the rule of faith. You know, and it sounds super Unitarian.
1: Yeah, well, I mean... Depending on how you define Unitarian, Arius is a Unitarian, right? Because he, oh, yeah. he admits Definitely. that the only true God is the Father. And that this is what's interesting. This was an entirely uncontroversial premise for three hundred years, in that that the only true God is the Father. Everybody will say that. Even the most proto-trinitarian theologian will say that the only true God is the Father. Even now some Trinitarian theologians. Even Nicaea say that the says only, it. Yeah, even Nicaea says it, right? (laughs) So, but again, you know, how you work that out, what it means, there are going to be differences of opinion. What I think is uncontroversial, I think what's obvious is that, um, you know, the point that Vladimir Latinovich makes in in one of his uh, recent papers that... Arius between Arius and and A- uh, Athanasius Arius very much had the more conservative and traditional opinion he's very much on the same trajectory as previous mm-hmm. subordinatious theologians like Tertullian Novation Irenaeus yes. and so on justin yeah. um, and it's Athanasius who is coming up with something new uh, that is you know is is not really the traditional opinion at all yeah.
0: well I, I would I would just push back say that alexander not uh, he was really the predecessor of Athanasius but point certainly taken. I mean, when you read the Thalia, as Athanasius ironically preserved it, um, Arius says, look, I'm, hey, I'm not trying to invent anything new here, you know, and I'm not trying to uh, say homoousius like um, uh, Sibelius. I wouldn't do that. You know, and like Arius is like super aware that there are uh, Christological heresies and that he's not one of them and he's really trying not to be one of them. And, you know, when you read um, like uh, Socrates, the historian and Sozaman, um, you kind of get the impression that Alexander was really the innovator and uh, Arius was the the conservative party that's just like, hey, this is not the way we received Christianity in the past. You know, you're innovating, bro. You know, and uh, it seems like that's more a a take on what was happening than Arius, some evil... Um, outsider who infiltrated the church and brought in this horrible infection that the body of Christ fought off with the white blood cells of the Nicene and Constantinopolitan creeds. You know, that's just, right. that's not history, man. That's just, uh, that's propaganda That's what that is.
1: Right. I, You know, Alex, um, so Latinovich has this um, portion in his article where he notes that there were two bishops from... What is today called the Balkan area uh, around Croatia, that area Lyricum, I guess it was called back then, um, and they were taken to a council in the year 381 after Constantinople, and they were deposed and they were accused of being Arians, and part of their defense was they said, "We've never heard of Arius, we don't know what he looks like, we don't know what he believes." <laughs> right, so there are people who live on the opposite end of the Mediterranean Sea who have been bishops; they are just passing on what they were taught. And their theology sounds Arian, but they had never heard of Arius. They don't know what he looks like. They don't know what he taught. You know, they never learned from him. Um, so mm-hmm. again, I think yeah. it's it's just uh, honest inquiry. And of yeah. course, there, there's always a move, right? So even the people who admit that Athanasius is... Theology or Alexander's theology was not the traditional one. Nevertheless, we'll say, well, yeah, but theology progresses and it's a better idea. It offers, you know, so there's always moves to make here. But yeah. at the very least, what's obvious is that Athanasius and Alexander's opinion was not at all the mainstream understanding of these things, you know, yeah. a generation before.
0: And Arius did innovate. I, I will certainly admit that. I think he innovated in reaction to Alexander. I think that his whole ex nihilo claim uh, that the sun came from nothing. That that was what Athanasius and others really seized upon as the most offensive. Rather than saying he was he was from God from Theos, he is uh, from nothing. Right? That uh, this was this this was an innovation. You don't see that in in previous authors. At least I haven't found it anywhere. Um, well, uh, let me just kind of wrap up here because we're uh, coming up to an hour. And uh, I did want to ask, uh, if you uh, have any sense of the Unitarian communities around the world, uh, I know you're, you're uh, finding your way. Um, what, what do you think could be done for the growth of the movement in general? Do you have any thoughts on that uh, or at least a way to get people uh, less, less likely to immediately shut down any conversation on this important topic? Like, what can we yeah. do to, to improve the
1: discussion you know i really don't know um (laughs) i i you know i was just mentioning earlier this morning because i was doing an interview with carlos i think that trinitarianism um the way that it's presented at times appeals to a certain dark element of human religious psychology Uh, people are told that unless you believe this mysterious doctrine about god you are not saved Uh, and they take that to heart I think that there is something in the human heart that is afraid of God and is worried that God doesn't actually love us and God will not accept us. And when you have these people who claim to speak on God's behalf and they tell you that unless you believe this very mysterious doctrine, which neither you nor I can understand, uh, you're outside of the fold, right? People have always believed that you're going to be out. It appeals to some weakness, you know, just like if I knew you had a certain insecurity and I can get you to do something by appealing to that. That's what's going on. It appeals to a certain weakness in human psychology, this fear of God, um, this fear that God will not accept us and this sort of because we're afraid of God, we're also at the same time hesitant to claim that we understand him because you can't be afraid of something that you understand. Um, So because we're afraid of God, because at the same time we don't understand him, we're sort of primed to be told that unless we believe something that we cannot understand, God will damn us. Well, All right. It makes sense. So I'll do it. Um, I think that, like I said, I think at least in certain instances, in in certain modes of propagation, uh, Trinitarianism appeals to this dark element of human psychology, which is a sort of like irrational fear of God. And it fits, right? People are just unwilling to consider. This is why people don't have freedom, you know, personal freedom to inquire into matters of religion. For them, it's not—religion is not a matter of inquiry. Religion is you believe this because otherwise you're not on God's side, Uh, and there's no point in inquiring into it. Well, and there Um, are
0: experts, and people just blindly trust experts, just like in any field, right? But the the problem is you, as somebody who studied the experts and who is an expert yourself at this point— you know that the emperor's naked. Like, there's no there's no expert that actually knows what the Trinity is either. Right. You know, the best you could do is, like, apophatic statements about what it is not, you know, to kind of, like, box in what you can't say. But that's right. not a
1: definition. Right, I agree. I, I mean, you find um, Trinitarians themselves don't agree about what the doctrine of the Trinity means, uh, for example, Karl Rahner and Jürgen Moltmann are both Trinitarians, but you cannot, in principle, have more dialectically opposed or diametrically opposed conceptions of the Trinity. And Moltmann develops his own doctrine of the Trinity specifically in contradiction to Karl Rahner and Karl Barth. Right. And right. they're, so both they're both Orthodox, contra- right? They're both they're orthodox. both Orthodox. <laughs> they're both Trinitarians, <laughs> but they disagree with each other. They contradict each other specifically about what the persons are. Right. That's so right. I I think at the end of the ga- at the end of the day, these are I don't know what to do about it. It's it's this big monstrous thing you know this big whole institution that is involved um i'm trying to do my part by being an academic theologian who is you know has a phd from an accredited institution and has studied under some of the big dogs and has published you know a lot and i'm trying to argue listen there's no reason to make these things dogmas i'm i think personally that they are not true but i'm i'm willing to say listen if you think that it's true you can believe it but at the very least don't make it a dogma because you're overstepping the bounds when you say that you have to believe this despite its lack of attestation in scripture and despite the fact that nobody really knows what it means um so i'm trying to do my own small part in making non-trinitarian perspectives academically defensible by saying that you know the trinitarian perspective does not deserve the title of dogma um Ordinary Christians, I should say ordinary, non-academic Christians, Christians who perhaps are not involved in the academic world, but are just talking to other Christians all the time. Uh, they can do a lot by just openly saying, listen, I don't believe this. I don't think there are good reasons to. You know, I think there are reasons to um, to uh, believe otherwise. Um in these sorts of discussions, there's always a back and forth. So then you have you know Trinitarian resources and then Unitarian resources responding mm-hmm. to it, and then the upgraded Unitarian, <laughs> Trinitarian arguments, and then upgraded right. Unitarian back, arguments. Yeah. Like so, these things are always going. There's always going to be a cycle of new literature coming out, and you. So you know, part of the problem is uh, talking with people, having debates. Part of the part of the solution is, um, or this yeah, part of the solution is producing new literature, responding to the latest arguments. they mm-hmm. you are know, just ongoing things, right? Yeah. But I think also. I, what i want to see more of is people who just don't care about the other side who have their own <laughs> life right we are yeah. if if we are not trinitarians we don't have to be anti-trinitarians as if our whole life is just arguing against the trinity yes. we can actually be christians we don't we happen not to believe in the trinity but we're christians and we have our own life we're trying to do our own thing and it doesn't matter to us you know if you disagree with us we call us heretics whatever we have our own existence um, it seems to me that's the next step in in sort of liberated religious consciousness is being free to live as a religious person and not constantly having to defend yourself, not constantly having to disprove others. Yeah, Being confident enough in yourself that you don't have to constantly be in an argument with others and you can just do your own thing. Um, this is where I feel that I've reached a point in my life. I am waiting. I'm trying to find an opportunity to simply live my life as a Christian and to not care as much anymore or, and to be indifferent to what other people say and just to do my thing yeah. and to put into practice the thing that I know I should do. Um, it's not easy, of course, um, but that that I think is another important step to take. There are too many people who their whole life is just constantly arguing online and apologetics and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and it's like your whole life is just in a constant debate. Yeah, uh, I that's think not healthy certain, either, right? Yeah, I think at a certain point you should just, you should reach the stage where you no longer care what people say about you, how people who disagree with you treat you, you no longer, you just do your own thing and you have your own life and you no longer have to try to earn your stage. You know, you earn your spot on the stage. You can just go on living your life. Yeah. Um, well, so uh, I think that's another step to take as well.
0: Would you ever consider debating on uh, like the doctrine of the Trinity or, or one particular facet of it? Like uh, I don't
1: like doing debates. I'm not a good formal debater. I don't have any problem. Like if if you wanted to have like somebody sit down and we just have a chat, you know, and you know, we have like a list of questions and we both offer questions, you know, answers to questions and like a a back and forth. I'm fine with that. But a formal debate, I don't do well. I don't like it. It's too much pressure on me. I like to have a a calm and collected conversation with the person and I don't mind going back and forth. My, you know, my degree is in philosophy. I have a degree in theology. I am not sensitive. I'm not a flower. I will not cry if you contradict (laughs) me. <laughs> uh, but I just don't like the the, the formal debate structure. I it's it, it doesn't a work. A bit for artificial. Me. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. It's, it doesn't function for me. I think yeah. there's too much of a temptation to try to score points and to try to you know uh, come out looking Use better, the, even though you may not sophistry the better and
0: rhetoric rather than actual honest hearted inquiry. Yeah. Um, I,
1: I don't mind talking about the same thing for two hours if we can at least reach a conclusion. But debate format uh, don't let you do that. In a debate format, you're trying to score points and look like you win. Yeah. And I don't I don't like that so i would rather just sit down and have a conversation with the person than to do any sort of like formal debate
0: very good uh well dr nemesh thanks so much for talking with me today i appreciate your time is there any uh, anything else you didn't get to say you want to say by way
1: of closing here well i i I guess i can say that i'm i have written a book on this topic of uh, trinity and incarnation and i'm in the process of trying to get it published um I don't yet have a publisher, I've, I've written to a few different publishers, and I'm trying to see what my options are. If it if it doesn't work out as it is, I think I will try to restructure the book, uh, so that it is strictly a discussion about two nature's Christology. So I may try to restructure the book into a critique of diaphysitism. But as it stands now, the book is a a book about Trinity and incarnation. uh, And I'm trying to get it published. And I think it will be interesting to people to, um, you know, something that if it does ever get published, I think it's something that they could be interested in. Because I'm I'm trying to argue that the okay. doctrine of God that is taken for tr- granted in the Catholic tradition, a doctrine of divine transcendence, creation ex nihilo, divine simplicity, uh, this doctrine of God is can't be reconciled with the verbal formulas of the doctrines of Trinity and Incarnation, one God and three persons, or one mm-hmm. person in two natures. And so because there's a tension, because they can't be reconciled with each other, it's open to theologians to give something up from this whole complex, right? because they can't fit together. So you can give something up. Maybe you can give a lot up. You can give a little bit up. Uh, so what I'm doing in this book is trying to show the tension inherent in the Catholic conception of God. Uh, and then to provide my own alternative and in my part of my own alternative is precisely this understanding of Christ as a human being who is specially used by god uh, rather than as a single person in two natures so if this book ever is published you know i think people will be interested in reading it mm-hmm. um but you know we'll see right now i'm in i'm in the stage of trying to get it published
0: and do you have a book proposal posted on your site or somewhere
1: No that- i don't i I, so I think on my website, I have a brief uh, description of the book okay, on good. my CV page. So you can sort of All see right. what it's about.
0: Yeah. Very good. Uh, and what is your webpage
1: again? com.
0: Okay. And um, you also have a blog. How do people find that? Is that linked on your webpage or...
1: You can go to um, snemish and the number two. So my first okay. initial, my last name, and the number two, Okay. So you can find Substack. me there. Com. Yeah, good. that's where I've been. That's where I've been writing stuff lately.
0: Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Uh, and you've been prolific. So uh, may you continue with that pace as long as you can. <laughs>
1: yeah, thank you. Things will get right. difficult to see when the, the school year starts up again, but I'll see what All I can right. do.
0: Well, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Well, that brings this episode to a close. What did you think? Come on over to restitudio.org and leave your feedback on podcast 477, Questioning the Trinity with Stephen Nemish. Some really interesting thoughts there. Honestly, I kind of wish I had more time with him because there's so much more to say, especially with his knowledge of church history. Uh, really fascinating person to talk to. So love to hear your questions and thoughts there. I did put this out also on YouTube as is typical, is raw, unedited, lots of ums and awkward pauses, whereas this audio, for your listening pleasure, is highly edited and tightened up and sounds great. I did want to let you know that we have one last episode of Will Barlow's Scripture and Science class to go, uh, but I've been making deals all over town, apparently. I've got another deal with Tom Hoosty for an interview with him, and there's a kind of a time sensitivity to that as well. So I think we're with respect to uh, my good friend Will Barlow, we we'll just have to push you another week, Will, and have this interview with Tom Housti. He's he's starting a new YouTube channel and website called Unitarian Anabaptist. So stay tuned for that next week, and uh, then after that we'll be finishing up our Scripture and Science class. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening here to the end. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitudio.org. Thanks to those of you who are doing that. Really appreciate it. It's really helping to purchase a lot of resources in the research phase for my upcoming church history class right now. Those of you who have done any kind of theological or church history research know that there are these obscure books that you sometimes need to do business with that for one reason or another, are not super popular and therefore are rather expensive. Some of them even $150 or more if you get them published by Brill. And sometimes you don't really have a choice. But uh, so thanks so much for those of of you who support. And uh, hopefully we'll have an amazing 2023 uh, as we do delve into more church history and interviews and all kinds of exciting theological and scriptural explorations as we continue in our quest to, to restore authentic Christianity and live it out today, our twofold mission statement. So thanks everyone. I'll catch you next week. And last of all, don't forget the truth has nothing to fear.